What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Indeed we do. Breaking news continuing now. After hours, Apple announcing its design chief, its chief design officer, Johnny Ive, is leaving that company. The stock falling about 1% after hours. Dan Nathan, we can kick this around. Uh, one of the few design chiefs in Silicon Valley, if the only one that's uh, somewhat of a household name. No doubt about it. I mean, I think what's really interesting to think back to, um, obviously, uh, Steve Jobs passing in 2011. I think a lot of people were focused on what uh, Johnny Ive's position was going to be going forward under the Tim Cook regime. And at the time, I would have said this announcement somewhere around then, 11, 12, 13, would have been really impactful. I think what's really important to remember from Walter Isaac book, you know, he was portrayed as kind of Steve Jobs' soulmate. He was the guy who put their ideas into, you know, Steve Jobs pushing them through to make them products. Now we're at a point where their products are less revolutionary and more evolutionary. And what Gene Munster just said, this is a transition. I know this is a big part of Tim's bull case into a kind of a service-driven model, less about every year some really slickly designed new hardware device. So, you know, at the end of the day, five years ago, the stock might have been down 5% on this sort of news. I think you're going to see a sort of muted reaction to it. Yeah, well, you're seeing it only down, you know, around 1%, which I guess is kind of surprising. Uh, Tim? Well, when I, when I think about the three things that have me most concerned about Apple, they would be, first of all, you know, some trade war dynamic, but more importantly, that there's a competitor in a, around $600 that does everything that the iPhone does. So you actually get a lower price competitor. could be a Chinese, could be, could be something coming out of Europe. Frankly, Nokia and Ericsson are making a comeback. But the other part of this would be, App Store. The other part would be, do people really need to go to the App Store? So talking about that services revenue, to what extent are there alternatives out there? If anything, let's face it, Apple's been under regulatory pressure for that very dynamic. So those are the things that have me the most worried about. Dan pointed out, no revolution under Johnny I for the last, you know, how many years? And, and, and the evolution has been something that people actually are quick to talk about as being the issue at Apple. So uh, honestly, the stock's reaction in the after hours is appropriate. Yeah, so it's a perception problem. Just so everyone is just saying, I think it's more as a perception problem not a production problem. The stock is up 26% year to date. The, those numbers that we're talking about service is 40 billion now, just under. This is the really switching the game. So yes, if the app store becomes in play and that becomes a problem with competition, which I don't think it w will be, I don't think that's gonna happen, then that's a worrisome event for Apple because then the whole case of hardware company versus services goes out the window. But I think services are strong enough that you could still buy the stock. Like the well, design of the iPhone and the other products now is the design. Right. That already has Johnny Ives' fingerprints, so to speak, all over it. Now it becomes more about services and software and I think they're not going to make a new iPhone anytime soon. No, are I don't they? think so. I don't think they're going to make. I mean, maybe make an incremental change. But sure. you probably don't need Johnny Ive to do that, right? Or at least his design firm, his independent design firm, can do it. I just think what uh, I'm, I'm in agreement with everybody else. What this shows, this is probably the final signal to say that Apple is transitioning and they're betting the future of the company 
on services and not on hardware. And they've been growing the services, but I think this kind of is the flag out there that says Apple is really a service company now. That's what they're focused on. Let's not act like there's not going to be any relationship either between right. um, Johnny Ive and the company itself, Dan. You can see he gave this exclusive interview to the FT where he says for his own design company that they'll still be very closely sure. involved. Apple will be a client of his. It's not like Johnny Ive is not going to have anything to do right. uh, come tomorrow or next week with Apple products. Yeah, so I think it's really important. G. Munster also just mentioned this, that Johnny Ive has not been taking center stage a lot of these product announcements, you know, the big uh, you know, ones that they do for hours. They bring up a lot of other product heads. He actually narrates the video, the one-minute video. That's about it. That's what you've gotten from Johnny Ive over the last few years. So I suspect this is something that's been in the works for years now. Um, but to your guys' point, listen, you know, at some point, this iPhone is, what, 12 years old or something like that. It basically, the form factor has been fairly consistent over the last few years. We know that Samsung tried to do this foldable thing. There is going to have to be some bold strokes in the high-end smartphone. Um, do you, you know, we know that... Um, replacement cycles are getting elongated, that sort of thing. So there's going to have to be some really new designs coming out. And the one other point, you said one of your biggest worries on the hardware front is that there's a much lower price phone yeah. that does all the same stuff. In the areas where they want to grow, in China, in India, there are much more sure. um, you know, lower price phones that are made by locals, that sort of thing. And, and in this trade war environment that we're in, there is going to be some nationalistic fervor about the products that you buy. So this is a huge risk. I would have said if they could have come out with some really sleek cool sort of hardware device in emerging markets. That would have been great. They've never been able Let's to do Let's talk it. about the stock bigger picture, too. It's a stock yeah. that was at 200 bucks, maybe a little bit north of that, 201, high as 233. What gets it back to, well, a, to that level, if not beyond? I think it, it, it's great to talk about this very point because I, I think, first of all, tr round one of trade war treated like a trade war stock. Um, round two or three of trade war, really at this point, it's decoupled. And it's at a point, I realize much of the market has decoupled. But, but I, I, I think Tim Cook deserves a lot of credit that he, he just doesn't get for understanding the capital markets levers. And I, I, it's oversaid, possibly by me, maybe others. But, but think about the accretion this company can do with $50 billion of free cash flow. Think of what they can do in terms of e either being earnings accretive at a time when maybe they're, they're not growing the top line like they once were. So um, I think the stock, first of all, uh, in this environment where we're looking for somewhat defensive, but also uh, names that can be consistent and, and have a backstop under their bid, this is that. And what is the multiple? We all just said, if they're moving to a services company, we all can rattle off some services companies that traded stratospheric multiples. I'm not saying Apple deserves that, right. but you start it's to been, blend it's this It's been with tough hardware. to get it, but once you get it, 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 it if they do get it, you have a meteoric rise. The first sell-off in this was that Powell uh, tantrum in, in October. That's where it first sold off. Then it was trade sub, war. Sub-150. Yeah. Right. Then, then it was, yes, exactly. Then it was trade war concerns. But when you really look at the stock a, as a whole, what can they do to get above it? If trade war concerns start to ease a little bit, just sideways. Yeah, we get 17% of their revenues out of China. So, so, and we already saw the print, though, that they're going to try to lower their dependence on China. So it's already happening for them. And I think those are all positive headlines. And until this headline hit, you had some momentum above 200. You had some uh, momentum trying to push back to that level. All right. Speaking of uh, the headlines, let's go back out to California. Our Josh Lipton uh, has some more for us right now. Josh? Yeah, listening, Scott, to just your guys' great conversation, I think it's so interesting with this news. You think of Sir Johnny Ive, you think of someone who is who is so respected and revered in the design world. Uh, the, the hardware work he did on the iPod, the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, and I think it is interesting here. He is going to set up this firm. So yes, he's not going to be an Apple employee, but they stress that he is going to still count Apple among his primary clients. They say that he's going to work, in Tim Cook's words, on what are described as exclusive projects. 
So you begin to wonder what some of those projects could be for a guy who has so much history. He knows Apple's design. Um, he also knows what, they, what they're working on in hardware. What does that mean exactly? Um, we take guesses about what their possible plans could be in self-driving car technology, exactly what they're up to there. We're not sure yet, but we know reportedly they're still hiring folks from Waymo and Tesla. They're still driving literally tens of thousands of miles out here in California. We also think of those reports about potential Apple-branded AR glasses. Um, there are some reports which indicate those could be coming as soon as 2020. So the guessing game begins here. You know, he's going to still have a role here in Cupertino. What role exactly that'll be here going forward, Scott? Yeah, thank you, Josh. And not to mention, uh, for who else may Johnny Ive now be right. designing products for. Anybody else, uh, possible competitors to Apple you have to think about? Maybe you can't fault him for wanting to spread his wings and put his elbows out. I think Maybe he, have a little bit more of his own personal identity going forward. Yeah, and, and, and we've talked about the fact that the Apple, the phone hasn't changed that much. So what more is there to do for him to do at this company? Maybe it's something, you know, something in uh, driving. Maybe he designs the car for them. Maybe there's a bigger project that he works on. But for Apple, the company, I, this is a big kind of symbolic move, but we're talking a bit about you know, where are the risks now with Apple? To me, the big risk here is that they can't grow the services off of the installed base. Because if you're not going to have a new shiny phone that everybody's going to want to buy and you're going to draw new people, then you better make sure that installed base really wants those services. You know, what's funny is, is real quick, when you look back on a chart, when Apple started with those installment payments, if you follow the chart, it was straight up from there. So I, I, I agree. When you look at the phone, that's a thousand bucks, eleven hundred bucks, eight hundred bucks. But now it's installment. People don't think about it. We just pay it per month now, so it's no longer a thousand dollars. Then you trade it in, and you just pick up it on the payment. It's like a car lease now on the phone. So those bigger price phones aren't as big here as they are but, in the emerging but, market. But Steve, it becomes a commoditized product <clears throat> once you start doing that, and then you start thinking about what does Amazon or excuse me, Apple Prime look like, right? So you're going to be leasing the hardware, you're going to be leasing other services. You know that they've made a huge splash in gaming, or at least they've announced to do so in, in uh, entertainment. Obviously, music is a huge part of it. So at some point, you're not going to command the same gross margin for that hardware. You know, right, Apple, people used to wait longer to upgrade. Right. Now, now, if I know it's going to cost me an extra three or four bucks a month, I'm more apt to upgrade sooner. But I, you know, look at their operating margin. You've gone from about a 31% operating margin in 2014, 2015. You're now 20. 324. I, I think the market's gotten very used to this uh, this trend on Apple, and, and I think it's it's living with it. I, I maybe maybe a bad example, but 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 think about what people are willing to do to Disney uh, in terms of the multiple that it lived at until it got into a business where it started to compete and, and get a Netflix multiple. Um, let's face it, it, at some point Disney's absurdly expensive, or Netflix is 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 the standard that it should be trading closer to. I think it, again back to the blended multiple on Apple. Who's to say that this company shouldn't be trading at 25 times? And if so. Uh, especially when they're giving you back 3% a year and they have an earnings accretive you know, buyback process. Um, I, I don't run out the door on this news, and I think we're all saying that. Yeah, I'd go, Dan. Last comment on this. And just wondering if a 1% decline in the immediate aftermath of this announcement is commensurate with someone like Johnny Ive leaving Apple. Yeah, I think that a lot of the people who are trading it after hours right now probably didn't even know who Johnny Ive was, and it sounds like a big deal. You know, I think that there's probably plenty of ways. I suspect that you'll see Johnny Ive on their board, you know, in the next year or something. I think it's the sort of thing they're going to keep him in the fold. And the last point is you are not going to see him designing consumer electronics for any of their competitors. Johnny Ive is an artist. He may go design some stuff that will never be in Apple's purview, and that might be a nice arrangement for him going forward. Yeah, it's going to be uh, interesting, uh, certainly, to follow this breaking news story uh, throughout the evening 
And of course, tomorrow, uh, once the market reopens, our thanks to Josh Lipton with delivering, helping us deliver that news. And we do have more breaking news tonight, this time on the banks. The Fed releasing the second round of its annual stress test results. Let's go to Leslie Picker back at headquarters with all of those details. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Scott. J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Morgan Stanley getting some of the biggest boosts in after-hours trading on those stress test results and capital distribution plans announced within the last 30 minutes or so. J.P. Morgan hiking its dividend by 13%, returning about 29.4 billion dollars to shareholders through a buyback. Wells Fargo also raising its dividend by 13% and announcing a 23.1 billion dollar buyback. Morgan Stanley hiking by 17%, returning six billion dollars through a buyback. Deutsche Bank shares also gained in after-hours trading after passing the Fed's stress test along with the 17 other firms tested. Now, the banks are able to move forward with returning capital to their investors, but Credit Suisse's U.S. unit was flagged for certain weaknesses in its capital planning processes. It will be required to maintain its payouts from last year's levels until it addresses the Fed's identified weaknesses by October 27th. The Fed gave Credit Suisse's U.S. unit what's known as a conditional non-objection to its capital plan. This is essentially, Scott, a middle ground between pass and fail. No firm's plan was rejected on quantitative grounds. Now, the Fed described its rationale for Credit Suisse's non-objection as having, quote, identified weaknesses in the assumptions used by the firm to project stressed trading losses that raise concerns about the firm's capital adequacy and capital planning process. J.P. Morgan and Capital One adjusted their plans compared to their earlier submissions, meaning they had initially requested distributions that actually put them below the required minimum, and then they had to tweak them. This is the second time all of the banks subjected to the stress test have passed, the first one being two years ago in 2017. Scott. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker following the money. Uh, Financials had a good day today, and I wonder if a lot of that was in anticipation of a rosy stress test result. Well, I think it was highly unlikely that the banks were going to fail on these, right? We, we kind of knew that, but you, you, were, you were making a bet earlier today who was going to be able to raise their dividend, who was going to be able to return capital. I think the market got it mostly right. You look at J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley, probably the two that came out the best from this. Yeah. Look at Wells there, unchanged. Uh, you see these other big banks, and Wells has its own issues, obviously, well, with Wells the CEO is, is search to itself. and, and it's actually, some of the other baggage that It's actually that unchanged year-to-date as well. So if you look at Bank America, Bank America is up 14% year to date. And then you go to Goldman up 19%. City is by far the outperformer up 30% year to date. I think you have to stay with those. JP Morgan is only up 11% year to date. So everyone looks at JP Morgan as the one that leads the financials. I'd look to a city or a Goldman right now in this environment that we're in. Yeah. But yeah, you have to like how aggressive JP Morgan was almost to the point of failing the test. I mean, if you're an investor, these are guys that want to give as much back in terms of capital as they can. This is a company that knows, I bet it's balance sheet as well as anyone and has the ability to try to, uh, again, to, 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 to uh, what do we say? These things are trading cheap and are priced to book value or tangible book value. Uh, to, the fact that these guys are looking to be as aggressive on capital return to investors, uh, we're now probably two and a half years into this regime after almost a decade where banks couldn't do anything. Uh, as an investor, I like that. Let's call it from, from CCAR and beyond, Dan. I mean, you know, rates are where they are. Uh, there's no real belief that interest rates are going to be rising in the very near future. So what happens to the banks moving forward once you put this in the review? I think it's really interesting to segregate the money center banks and then the the investment banks. Because when I look at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, these guys should be like, it should be a party over there with the IPO scenario. And, and, you know, a lot of the banking environment, we're seeing M&A is crushing it right now. And I look at both of these names, Morgan and Goldman, and I say they're 25% off their 2018 highs, which were their post-crisis highs. And, And it just doesn't add up up with some of the things that we're seeing in the capital markets. So so to me, that's kind of curious. And then when we look at where interest
interest rates are. We look at the, the yield curve. We think about net interest margins. Yes, so Citi's acting well, still 15% off its size. I think the banks are dead money. I've been saying this now for 18 months since those January 2000 and highs. They've been good trading vehicles when you can buy them down, but I just don't see them getting back to the highs anytime soon. All right, coming up, stocks hovering at record highs and at a tipping point ahead of the trade talks this weekend. But one of Wall Street's biggest bears says a trade deal cannot save this market. Plus, more and more roadblocks are popping up on Tesla's road ahead as the competition for electric and autonomous vehicles heats up. ARK Invest's Tasha Keeney tells us what it means for that stock and later Bitcoin on a very wild ride in the past 24 hours. Right now, hovering at around $11,000. There it is, just under 10.5, let's call it. Boy, it's been really busy since yesterday afternoon. We'll tell you what's behind the crazy moves. We are live from Times Square in New York City, and there is much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. The market at a tipping point on hopes of a possible trade deal at the G20 this weekend. Wall Street trying to guess what will happen next as stocks hover near record highs for the third time in a year. Our next guest, though, says even a deal won't save the markets. Let's bring in one of the biggest bears on Wall Street, Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Welcome back. Thanks, you like Ken. being described that way? Are you are you one of the biggest <laughs> bears? Well, I'm more than one of the skeptical people out there, right? I don't think that. I mean, look, this has been a one-two punch. We've been talking about it for over a month, the Fed and trade. And can this get us through 3,000 finally? And I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think what's going to happen is we had the news from the Fed. I think it's good, right? It's not like December. That's going to help. But the issue here is that we're having a business cycle that's slowing. It's been slowing. So fundamentally, our call has been more right than I even hoped this year, right? CapEx is disappointed. Inventories are bloated, right? The ISMs are now rolling over. Things are slowing materially, and you can't blame it all on trade. So let's say we get a trade deal, right? This looks very similar to the meeting in November in Argentina, the G20. By the way, also end of the month, right? They go there. There's a trade truce. Everybody comes back on Monday, big pop, more than a half percent, and then December was December. Okay, now I don't think it'll be that bad, but think about if you're a procurement manager, right, and there's a trade deal, and you come back and say, oh, actually, there's a deal, I don't have to worry about tariffs going up, I'm going to burn that inventory down even faster, and that's kind of what happened in December. So to me, I'm not expecting a big deal. No, I don't think anybody's expecting a big deal. What if you just get, uh, you know, no, no additional tariffs for the time being, yeah. for another six months? That's what we And the Fed uh, raises, a hike, uh, sorry, cuts rates yeah. uh, in July. I think that's a positive, right? So that's why the market's trading at 29.50 again, right? We're pricing that in. But look, I think the big debate now is around the Fed. The the Fed, to me, is more important than trade. And here's why. If the Fed's cutting for insurance reasons, right, they're taking out an insurance policy, this is positive. If the Fed is cutting because it's end of the cycle and we're about to have three, four, five, six cuts over the course of the next year, which is what the bond market's kind of saying. Maybe the bond market's wrong because Powell's not suggesting that and even this week. That's right. But right? think about this, Scott. If you're the Fed chair right, and you're trying to, get the, you're trying to get sentiment back up and confidence up, even if you felt like things were getting worse, you're not going to say that. Right? You're going to say we're doing this to potentially you know, stave off concern about trade. And we're doing this to potentially stave off concerns we're seeing in the, in the, in the corporate you know, sentiment numbers, 
right? You're not going to come out and say, hey, well, we're worried about a recession. Would you, would you agree that it feels more preemptive than reactive or however you would characterize if they thought something was really terrible? No, I think this is very reactive. I think what they're doing, and by the way, it's appropriate. I think that the data has been really, really bad. Okay, so if we go through the numbers, we talked about in the last time we were here, freight index, right? The ISMs are very, very weak, and our leading indicators are suggesting they're going to get even weaker. Consumer confidence this week was really poor. That was bad. Retail earnings have been quite soft. Gasoline prices, oil prices have been coming in significantly, which is a signal of demand being weaker, right? Small cap stocks have been underperforming. Banks have been underperforming. Those are domestically oriented businesses, so this is not all about trade. I think, I think this is reactive. I think it's reactive to data that's slowing, and I think it's appropriate that they're reacting. And, I, and that's why we have a 50 basis point cut uh, for, forecasted for July, not 25. Well, why do you think that Powell is so on the bubble then? All the things that you just went down, that, that litany of things, reasons why he should be cutting. So if you're a short seller though on the market, let me just give you the setup. Obviously, you, you, you named it the trade war, and then we, if that eases, and then you have Powell with two or three cuts in his back pocket. Those are the positive things that you don't want to short it. Is he just lingering it out to save that ammo? Because once he cuts, he thinks that people are just going to start selling with both hands? Well, look, one of the Fed's biggest tools is jawboning, right? Signaling, right? Just the pause alone in January led to a 25% rally. So it's powerful to signal. And so they want to use all those tools in a sequential manner. They don't want to throw them all out there at once, which is why we were talking about earlier, they didn't end QE prematurely or QT prematurely. They're going to continue with the tapering. They could. But that's another tool that they could pull out. I think the Fed is going to be aggressive. And I think the Fed's going to be aggressive for reasons that are not always, not necessarily bullish. They could win. Historically, though, when the Fed is, begins a new rate cutting cycle, it's typically not a positive event for stocks over the next six months. Okay. Timmy? So, Mike, you, know, you talked about the Fed. A, a preemptive Fed is a bullish Fed for the market uh, as opposed to a reactive. Um, you get to a place where also the Fed often has tried to tell us for the last five years they're all about data dependent and we're going to wait for the data. So um, it gets to a place where I, I get the sense and, and I can't tell if you think that the market is ahead of the Fed or not. Can you clarify that? Because to me, um, you know, whether it's 2% GDP, which I realize is what we probably have in the second quarter, uh, I don't see where the Fed should be going 100 basis points, which is what the market is putting a high problem, 75%, we do that before the end of the year. Sure, that's right. I think the bond market is definitely ahead of where the Fed is today in action, but not at their words. I mean, I think the Fed has been aggressive with their, their jawboning, and I think they're, they are kind of telling you they're going to give you a lot over the course of the next year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, look, this is the yin and yang that always happens at this stage of the cycle. You know, going back again to the data dependency, another reason why they haven't, didn't cut rates last week is we don't know, right? They, they do want to see the data next week. We have three big numbers. We have the ISMs. We have the jobs numbers on, on Thursday and Friday. Okay, it's also a holiday week. And, and then they want to see that. They want to see that data. And I think that's appropriate. By the way, there's also a big meeting this weekend. And if there is a deal, there could be. Maybe there's a bigger deal than we're expecting. Then they maybe, maybe they don't have to go as aggressively. They want to keep those bullets in their pocket. So explain to me the sector picks you have of staples, financials, and utilities. So defensive. how does that all work? To, where yeah. financials play into that is curious to me. Yeah. So we've had the defensive rotation on for the last year. It's worked really, really well. And that, that has been a bond proxy call. Okay? Sure. The I get that. The financials, okay, now if the Fed is going to start cutting aggressively, which we think they are, the curve is going to start to steepen again quickly. That's what happens. Typically, once you enter that phase, it's pretty good for the financials. By the way, parts of financials have worked. Insurance has worked really, really well. It's late cycle. The banks are early cycle, so it's kind of a it's kind of a hedge position because you can't be fully defensive in your 
in your positioning, right? So we have defensives over here, and then we have one early cycle group over here. Last question, who wants it? Listen, you know, I kind of view what's going on with interest rates in the stock market. It's kind of like Tim's haircut. It's kind of business in the front, party in the back a little yeah. bit. I've never seen anything yeah. like this. We have the yeah, 10-year treasury at 2%, front, and we have the S&P looks like it's going to break out of an 18-month trading range. And so I guess the question is, Mike, you just mentioned rate cut cycles. It's not usually good for stocks. The last couple times it hasn't. So who the heck is buying stocks for a breakout here when bonds are telling us that growth is slowing? And they're going lower. Let's not forget, Dan, the S&P 500 is the most defensive stock market in the world. Okay, Global stock markets have had a rough time the last 18 months. So anybody who has to own stocks is owning S&P 500. Russell 2000 is not near the highs. Okay, Even the Nasdaq didn't make a new high last week when the, when the S&P did. So if you, you know, cyclical stocks are underperforming. So I think if you actually listen to what the market's been saying, it's actually not so far away from bonds as people might think. It's been trading very defensively. And yeah, we think we're going to stay in that consolidation. That's been our call for 18 months. We think we're going to get rejected here again at 3,000. Maybe we pop over it quickly uh, on Monday. We'll see. We'll see what happens. All right. Good stuff, as always. Thank you. Good to see no you, party Michael. in the back. He's what, I think what he's saying. He's saying no party in the back. <laughs> Massive bullet. All right. For more on the markets, go to CNBC.com. Here's what else is coming up on Fast Money. The race is on for Tesla, as its electric and autonomous rivals pump up the competition. We'll tell you why the company's demand problem could be about to get even worse. Plus, it's a Bitcoin battle. Two Wall Street heavyweights sounding off today on just how big of a deal Facebook's new Libra coin really is. The crypto baller will settle the score. There's much more Fast Money right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla up 20% this month. Still down, though, for the year as other industry giants go after Elon Musk's market share. Let's go to Phil LeBeau in Chicago with those details. Phil? Scott, increasingly we're hearing about greater competition for Tesla, and today was a good reminder of that. Look at Volkswagen announcing that it's going to be starting an electric rideshare program in Germany. Now, it's just beginning. It's, it's early on, but you combine that with other news you got the Porsche Taycan, all-electric Porsche coming up by the end of this year. And then you've got increasingly hearing from analysts who are skeptical that Tesla's growth will be able to continue as it has been in the past. 
Credit Suisse out with it in coverage today, initiating coverage. And here's what the analyst had to say about Tesla. Underperform rating, $189 price target. And he says, look, they're ultimately going to be a niche automaker. And then you've got firms like Waymo, the subsidiary uh, within Google, the former Google self-driving car project. They have started their service with Lyft out in parts of the metropolitan Phoenix area. Ten cars that will be on the Lyft uh, platform. So if you go for a lift and you're in the area, you might get a Waymo autonomous vehicle. And the riders, uh, they seem to like what they're seeing and what they're experiencing so far in the Waymo vans. I think there's a curiosity that kind of is very pervasive in our community. And I'm quite sure the world would feel the same at some point. Put it all together and you have people saying, does Tesla face more competition for the second half of this year? Scott, we will be getting Q2 deliveries sometime between Monday and Wednesday of next week. That's the expectation. Those are the numbers that will really move this stock next week. No doubt, and we will hear from you then for sure, if not before. Phil, thanks so much. You bet. As Phil LeBeau, and for more on this story, let's bring in Tasha Keeney, an analyst at ARK Invest who covers industrial innovation, autonomous driving, and 3D printing. What should we be thinking about now with Tesla? Well, you know, I think there's too much focus on the, the delivery figures, right? So, so at ARK Invest, we look at Tesla and we see it's, it's a long-term play. So we have a five-year time horizon on our, all of our investments. And it's really an autonomous electric vehicle company. And when we talk about competition, we think Tesla is at least three years ahead on both autonomous and electric. Um, and it's really just a good thing that other players are coming into the market. It validates the space. But how can you, you guys have like a $4,000 price target on the stock, don't you? Uh, yes, we think it could actually go north of 4,000. But how can you, how can you say don't pay attention to arguably the most important thing that Tesla does, and that's make and deliver vehicles? Well, I, I, that is the most important thing that Tesla does. But so, so one, um, the $4,000 price target that is really looking at the autonomous vehicle business combined with the electric business. Um, but in general, I think what most people are missing is that the electric vehicle market is going, we think it's going to be huge. We think there could be 26 million EVs sold globally in the next five years. That's up from 1.4 million today. And let's not forget, that's out of 86 million, right? So it's, it's off of, uh, you know, the penetration rates today are relatively low, and we think that market could be big. Um, so we think Tesla will maintain um, a position in the market. We do expect their share to shrink. But right now, they have the best performing and most efficient EVs on the market. And we see the numbers um, showing us that. You know, 60% of trade-ins for the Model 3 were from the non-premium segment. Tasha, do you, do you think that the, the company's technology has been ahead of the competition for a long time? When you look at the operation dynamics in the balance sheet of the company, do you, uh, do you think they can make it five years? I mean, honestly, that, that's what the market is challenging right now. There's been a semi-restructuring going on as, as almost you see Elon Musk talking about the, whether they're cutting back this or that. CapEx should not be being cut back for, for a growth company. Yeah, so, so Tesla did a raise earlier this year, right? Um, actually, in our valuation model, we're factoring in an additional, say, 10 to $20 billion dollars. Um, and we'd actually be happy with that dilution because right. it means they get more cars on the road, which is ultimately what we want. We want them to get at scale when they launch autonomous. What, what do you think's holding that? I, I, I think you're right. I think they should just get on with raising money and maybe should have done it a couple of years ago. Is it just because it's, the valuation's not where they want it right now? Because it seems like they need that money. 
Yeah, well, you know, again, they did the raise this year, so they're probably good for the, the near term, um, certainly for, for the, the cash requirements that they have ahead of them for 2019. Right. Um, but, yeah, the, I, I think, you know, in the future, they, they could be rating for, waiting for a good buy point. But, but I, think, I think the greater picture is, you know, again, we, we'd be okay with them raising that capital in the equity markets because uh, we think this is such a large opportunity. We think that autonomous driving should be valued at $2 trillion today in the equity markets, and it's virtually unaccounted for. So, so Tasha, you just mentioned that about autonomy for these guys. Their, their program has been controversial, right? And so, you know, obviously you're trying to get EV to a certain production level, which gives them the ability to kind of move forward on autonomy. But how do you guys see it? I mean, because, you know, it seems like the headlines on autonomy right now are not good. And it might really kind of hold investors back a little bit. Yeah, so there, there's this idea that autonomy is scary, right? And I, I'm not going to say that, you know, one bad headline couldn't, um, you know, push back the industry, say, you know, six months. But we think ultimately, I mean, we're already seeing signs that um, cars with autopilot are safer than cars without it. Um, NHTSA has come out and said that. They've done an independent study. Um, so, so we actually think that autonomous vehicles will be 80% safer than a human-driven car. And what's ultimately going to cause the adoption of these is really price. So we think that the, the at scale, the price of an autonomous taxi could be just 22 cents per mile to the consumer. That's down from, say, $2.50 per mile today that Uber and Lyft charge. Um, so that dramatic reduction is what's going to make people adopt this service. Tasha, we appreciate it very much. Thanks All right, Tasha Keeney with ARK Investments. Let's trade it. Do you, you own it? I don't own it anymore, but I go traditional on this. I go back to Ford. We're talking about car companies, so let's talk about Ford. Ford's up 33% year-to-date. Tesla's down 33% year-to-date. And then you look at GM, which is up 14% year-to-date. All margins are up in both car companies, Ford and GM. And Ford was unnecessarily beaten up on Mexico tariff concerns. Now you see it popping back. I think I'd stay with Ford. Maybe you buy the laggard as well, but Ford and GM, to me, look constructive. So so the crux of the argument for Tesla here, or the crux of the problem, is exactly what you got got at. Is this just a car company, and can they execute on that? And that's what the market's concerned about now. But Or is there a bigger picture here, a new kind of a disruption going on? So if you think there's a disruption going on, which I actually think there is, there clearly is in the automotive business, you look back at other sectors, you want to own the disruptors. Now, you have to have a long-term time frame because Tim's going to tell you it's going to be, a, they may, a, a they dis- may run out of money. A disruptor is only a disruptor if it can deliver the disruption. If there's questions about whether they can actually and, deliver their vehicles. Yeah, well, they're delivering their vehicles. It's a question of are they delivering it on the same time schedule that Wall Street wants. The second part of that is can they survive long enough for the market to grow? And that, to me, is the real question about Tesla right now. Well, a trillion-dollar opportunity, uh, I think there's a trillion uh, questions. And, and otherwise, the technology is there. But five years from now, maybe a long time. I, I'd like to see what they do tomorrow. Okay. Let's get a check on Nike as well as we head to break. That stock is making a big reversal after hours. Uh, you can see it there. It was down as much as 4%. The conference call is underway. It missed on its EPS. We'll get much more into Nike when we come back. Plus, Bitcoin having a bizarre week, really a bizarre couple of days, breaking out to nearly 14,000 then crashing pretty fast. So what was behind all of that wild trading? Our gang is going to weigh in on that when Fast Money comes right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. It was the rally that never came to be. Well, it kind of did, but then then it crashed $3,000 in just 24 hours after a meteoric surge seemingly fueled by the unveiling of Facebook's Libra coin. And hedge fund legend Mike Novogratz said this morning on Squawk Box that Libra 
will be crypto's saving grace. In a really simple uh, way, one of the largest companies in the world uh, said, we believe in cryptocurrencies. And not just Facebook, but MasterCard, Visa, Uber, PayPal, all joined on this consortium to say, hey, this is going to be part of the financial infrastructure and the consumer infrastructure of the world. And so if you're an institutional investor who is getting close and still worried about investing, it makes you that much more confident. All right, so that was Novogratz. But our own Wilfred Frost sat down today with Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, who warned about Libra. They didn't approach me personally. I don't know if they talked to the organization. I doubt it. And is this, is this different, though, from just Bitcoin because of that list of 28 partners? Does, is it something that, that worries you that it'll take business from Morgan Stanley over time? Anything that has 28 partners would worry me a little bit. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that does not feel like a highly focused initiative. So who is right? With Bitcoin still up 200% this year, is Facebook's announcement just smoke and mirrors, or will it be a major catalyst for Bitcoin? Let's go to our Bitcoin boss. And Gorman expanded, as you saw, he was fairly dismissive of <clears throat> Facebook and, and crypto in general. Of yeah, I mean, listen, the guy makes his living of, over moving money around the world. But he's still via smart. That legacy. He's still I'm smart not, dude. Of course, but he's, he's the head of Morgan Stanley. That's what they do. They move money around the world. This is a product that is disruptive to that. Now, he, he may prove out to be right, but I happen to be making the other side of the bet. So I would disagree with him on that. I would disagree with Jamie Dimon on that. And they can, um, they can both call me and I'll explain why. Uh, Dimon, they're, Dimon's, they're wrong. Dimon's uh, you know, softened his view well, they all more have. so they, than they, his original right. They outright. all have because they understand that this is a disruptive technology and they either can get ahead of it or they can go out of, they won't go out of business, but they can be disrupted by do you it. Think this, do you think this spike, though, because this spike, gold spike, I know Paul Tudor Jones was positive so, on gold middle, yes. middle of June, but do you think this spike, when we started hearing from the Fed, how dovish they were going to be. And then when, when Powell steps back a little bit and when you hear, OK, it's not going to be uh, two, it might be one or it might be none in July. Do you start to see and then you start to see the Bitcoin, Bitcoin come off a little bit. Does that have anything to do with it? In your so opinion? for the first time ever, I would say yes to that answer. Typically in the past, I say there's not a lot of people that are trading both markets. But what we're seeing this year for the first time in Bitcoins, at least since I've been trading in 2013, institutions are coming in. You have macro players buying into the futures market, and they are starting to trade it like another currency, like the euro or the yen. So, yes, you are seeing that. So tell people what to do right today. You go up to 14 and then down to 10 in a nanosecond. Now what? So it depends on your time frame. If you're a trader like I am, I would pick some up right here. I actually bought a little bit more today. Now, remember, it is extremely volatile, right? This can go down 2,000 points. It could go down to 7,000. But on the longer run, what's going on here is you have demand coming in from institutions. And then in the next year, you're going to get daily supply cut in half. We talked about that in January. So you have big demand coming in, supply getting cut in half. It's simple economics. Over the next couple of years, I see this as another bull market. It can go down or up in 2,000 points in 15 minutes as we It learned. sure can. That's why, right. that's why BK that's has dark why. circles well, on this. That's why eyes. you're the Bitcoin <laughs> yeah. boss. I thought those were glasses. That's BK. All right, coming up, check out Nike shares. The stock is still lower after hours. Company expected to give guidance on the call any minute now. We are tracking it by the second. Plus, Dan Nathan has one chart that could hold the key to where stocks are heading next. He's going to break that down when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. We have an earnings alert on Nike. It's falling after hours. Sarah Eisen is down at the New York Stock Exchange with the latest from that conference call. Sarah, what are they saying? 
So the CFO just gave an outlook for the current quarter and the full year, Scott. I'll tell you what he said. Reiterated guidance in the high single-digit range, exceeding last year's growth. Remember, Nike's starting a new fiscal year during this current quarter. And the CFO also said you can look forward to an expansion of gross margin, potentially approaching 50 percent. The quarter they just reported, it was in the 45 to 46 percent. They did say, executives did say Q1, the current quarter, uh, revenue growth will be in line or above what we just reported during the past three months. But that foreign exchange, that strong dollar, will continue to hurt. He called it an anomaly in the first quarter, but said it will abate in the second quarter and going forward to then, from then. So it's going to be improvement. Look, the bottom line on Nike, there was a lot of anxiety going in about a slowdown in global growth, a strong dollar, and especially China. But Nike posted more than 20 percent growth in China. And Mark Parker, the CEO, led the call by talking about the strength in that market. Listen. We added more than $1 billion of incremental growth in the geography over this past year. We are and remain a brand of China and for China. Nike is proud of the investments we've made and the relationships we've developed in energizing this marketplace. And we're confident that we'll continue to grow sport and our business in China for decades to come. So that was a clear statement about their commitment to China. And in fact, the first analyst question was about whether they've seen any kind of nationalist attitude from the Chinese consumer affect American products like Nike. Andy Campion, the CFO, Scott said, we have seen no impact of the trade tensions in China. Parker, the CEO, got on and said, yes, the consumer sentiment in China has only been strong. And that continues to bear out in the numbers. Just wanted to also tell you North America was a bright spot. That's the biggest chunk of sales for Nike, the home market, uh, continuing to grow there. And also, in terms of why they missed so much on the bottom line, the only sort of knock against this quarter, high costs. Costs rose 10 percent. You know the company spends on athletes and celebrities and World Cups, and they're also spending to shift their business more to direct-to-consumer. But the executives on the call are talking that growth up, especially in their sneakers app, which has exploded in just two years, of why they need to make those investments. And as you can see, Scott, the stock is rebounding on some of that discussion. Yeah, it, it, uh, it seems as though the market likes what it's hearing in that guidance, uh, strong guidance at that. Sarah, thank you so much for bringing that to us. Mm -hmm. That's Sarah Eisen down at the New York Stock Exchange. Timmy, you own it. Is oh. the guidance enough to get the stock well so the, the couple run. things they said the strategic initiatives are, are going to begin to outweigh some of the the, the the essentially the strain that it's been on some of the profitability margins that we're a brand of china for china is is indicative of that these guys really have not been hurt while other companies have been and i, I do think north america remains the most important we got the greek freak line coming out in about a month so i mean i know dan you're probably <laughs> going to be lacing those up Honest, baby. um yeah, mvp mvp it should be well, you, you know, it's funny. We often talk about Nike in terms of one of these kind of multinationals at a premium valuation. Um, you know, but here's a company that obviously had a difficult fiscal 2019, and the guidance they just gave should actually make you feel pretty decent. Its APS growth is expected to be 20% on like 8%. Sales growth is trading about 27 times or something like that. Seems pretty reasonable, especially because they do seem more optimistic into the back half of the year. Okay, coming up, stocks hovering near the highs, heading into that highly anticipated meeting over the weekend with President Trump and China's President Xi. Will the outcome send the S&P soaring? The options market giving us some clues tonight. We're going to break those down next. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square where there is much more fast money straight ahead.
G20 conference is about to get underway, and while investors are on the edge of their seats awaiting any headlines that could move the markets, options traders are betting on the summit and the implications of a Trump-Xi meeting being a make-or-break affair. Dan Nathan at the Plasma with the options action, Danny. Yeah, so we were talking about the S&P 500. Mike Wilson just told us he thinks it's a pretty defensive equity index, and, you know, it acts pretty well relative to some of the scares that are going around as far as growth around the world um, and what interest rates are telling us. You know, the options market um, implying over the next month or so only about a 2.7% move in either direction. We're going to break that down um, a little later, but that's between now and July expiration on July 19th. But let's go to this chart really quickly because, you know, Despite the fact that the S&P 500 is up almost 17% on the year um, and made a couple of new highs this year from that Jan 18 high, it hasn't made a whole heck of a lot of progress. This is the 18-month chart. This is that that all-time high in January 18. We had a 12% peak-to-trough decline once we got to that level. Made a new high last, uh, last year. What did we do? We had a 20% uh, peak-to-trough decline in Q4. Just earlier this year, we had a new high again, and we had a 7.5% decline here. So we're kind of back in filling a little bit, but not making a whole heck of a lot of progress. I also want to hit that one comment that Mike made about the G20 in Argentina back in late November. What happened? We had this really this pop after we had a supposed truth or something like that. And then we had this flush. This really got things going. It was down about 15 percent over the course of the next two weeks um, after that. But let's go to the options market and really kind of figure out what the options market is telling us in the S&P 500 over the next month here. This is implied volatility, the price of options of the SPY. We had that spike in April. That was when the S&P had made that prior high. We've made a new high, and you can see that option prices are below that. So you might say to yourself, things are a little complacent here right now, heading into an event that maybe expectations aren't very high, but history has shown us that the market can move on that. So let's go back to how we figure out this implied movement in the SPY. Again, I'm looking at July expiration. When the ETF was trading at 292, you could buy the July 292 call and the July 292 put. They're each about four bucks. Combine that's 8%. If you bought that, you were buying the implied movement between now and July expiration. But here's the most important part. If you have a directional inclination, you think the SPY is going to break out or you think it's going to break down, you could buy that July at the money put or call for just 4 bucks. That's 1.35% of the underlying price over the next few weeks with lots of catalysts. I like playing it that way. All right, good stuff. Danny, thank you. And for more options, action, catch the big show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We'll step away. We'll come back. We'll do final trades. Time for finals. We go around the horns. Competition for Tesla. How about GM and autonomous and everything else? GM. Love it. The BK. You know what? I'm going to pick something that's a little less volatile oh. than, than crypto. Tesla. I think you buy it here. <laughs> okay. Stevie. In the chemical space, TSE, buy it. I'm in it. It's uh, been beaten up. Danny. Yes, yeah, spy into G20. I like buying those at the money July puts. Spy in this Oh, this weekend. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Thank you on. very much. Thank you, Scott. Good to Thanks for watching as well. Mad Money with Kramer begins right now. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.